So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You don't want to culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Monday, February the 27th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. Download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. With me today, I've got Sophie Hobson. She is the editor of LondonLovesBusiness.com and also with the writer and poet and uh, Londony app enthusiast. I've got you down as here, Victor Keegan. Hello, fellas. Hi. Hi. Where to start? We've got uh, more stories uh, because we've been off for a couple of weeks. We've been doing special episodes to do with Harrods and air ambulances and all that sort of stuff. So we've got a backlog of amazing stories, but there's also been lots going on um, in any case in London. I, I think I sort of want to start with the news that we don't compare very well with other cities at all in terms of transport costs. I wonder, Sophie, if you'd lead us in on that one. Well, London, as it turns out, is actually the most expensive um, city to, tra- to travel in in the whole of Europe. It's actually also more expensive than in Tokyo, which which is kind of baffling because Tokyo is a particularly expensive city. So one month travel card for zones one to five um, that costs one hundred and ninety one pounds, which is really quite crippling. It's it's obviously you know we all feel it every day. Um, I just I just find that my, I'm hemorrhaging money on transport, um, and obviously it's bad for London's business community as well because it, it's it's very prohibitive to commuters coming into work. Just so we can see how green the grass is on the other side of the fence, what uh, <laughs> what would an equivalent fare be elsewhere in the world? So an adult single fare in London sets you back two pounds sixty. If you compare that to Paris, also obviously a hugely popular city, it's only one pound forty. Um, Tokyo one pound eighty. New York one pound sixty. Um, the only other place that really comes close in the list I've got in front of me here is Newcastle at £2.40, but obviously just goes to show that the UK in general is fairly expensive to get around. Why do we suppose that is? Partly that um, we receive less subsidies than the other, others do because transport is heavily subsidised all over the world, or it's we're more inefficient, it may be a bit of both. And also at the moment we are engaged in a, a huge amount of investment, uh, mainly to make up the lack of investment in the past. I think it's a combination of these three factors that, that make it. But we are still we're paying these very high fares, but it's still, we're still subsidised by the tune of billions by, by the government. So goodness knows what the fares would be like if there were no subsidies uh, at all. But it is pretty sobering to see those figures. 
It's quite interesting. Uh, someone was talking about the origin of the underground, and they pointed out that it, it was formed by a bunch of different private companies all putting their own independent systems and then trying to glue them together. So it seems like al- almost the same problem that we've got with the, uh, the, the attempted dissolving of the, the unification of the, the system and private finance initiatives, PPP, and all that sort of stuff. So that, that problem has seen the underground right through for 100 or so years. Yeah. I, I think the other thing to remember is that the London Underground is the oldest subway system in the world. You know, it's bo- built, the bulk of it was built in Victorian times. You know, it is massively in need of an update. Also, just in sheer volumes of the number of people it carries every day, um, London's population is 7 million, set to increase to 8 million by 2030. Um, so, so that volume of people that it has to transport every day puts huge pressures on it. So much as I really, really resent having to pay so much for my travel, at the same time, obviously, it does need an update. And if, if we don't update our transport system, we are going to be holding ourselves back as a city. Um, and that's, that's quite a difficult balance for anyone, anyone controlling the underground to, to, to battle with. When you say update, what sort of thing do you have in your mind? Um, renovating stations, cleaning up the you know cleaning up the actual state of the tubes making them more efficient you know if you look at if you look at when the jubilee line was put in even all those little safety measures like making sure that you can only um, access the tracks once the tube has arrived the glass door security measures like that the jubilee line obviously is much quicker than other lines um so i think making for example the district line work at the speed of the jubilee line imagine how much more efficient that would make people's journeys to work that's right. I mean, the, the new Blackfriars station can, it means it, the platform can now take 12 carriages. So that means it can almost double the number of people coming in at one moment. So you do get efficiencies. But I think one of the things about London at the moment, and, and I see it because I walk rather than go use public transport, is the amazing amount of infrastructure. Apparently every other station seems to be having a radical rehaul, and they're gradually being completed. Blackfriars now, Farringdon is beginning to be completed mm. now. There's Oxford Cir- Circus, uh, Tottenham Court Road. It's an amazing programme of... Uh, uh, which has, has lots of disruptions we don't like at weekends, but it will eventually come to fruition and we will have a much better transport system. We've got, of course, some other stations you mentioned there are tied up with Crossrail and the mm-hmm. development of that. And um, I, some friends from overseas, were I was talking to them a couple of weeks ago and, and I said, well, we've got this exciting new Crossrail project. And they said, what's the point of that? You can already get to all of these stations very easily and if, if you know half of the uh, lines close down, there's still a million ways to get from one place to another in this town. Well, what is Crossrail for? Well, it will make it easier to go right across town, and, and any new bit of rail that, that opens up takes pressure off an, another one. Uh, and it's new; it'll be it'll be new and, and not old. I mean, I don't, I never doubted that it's going to be a, a success, but it, it, you've got to think over the sort of a period of fifty years, not a, not just two or three years. But no, it will enable an increase in traffic across London. That's what it's all about. Some ideas, in fact, a huge number of comments have come in on this story. Some great research, uh, by the way, from uh, Beth Parnell Hopkinson, who's put this story together. Some of the ideas here, one contributor says, and this is uh, Luca, New York system is bigger and more powerful. We have express trains to move across the whole city fast. And more important, think that the uh, NYC metro transport system moves us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, labouring the point there, Luca, for less than... Half price, um, and she talks about purchasing power, is what she puts that down to. Um, but uh, I was more interested in this one from MD. In Berlin, if you have the U-Bahn's equivalent of London's monthly travel card, you can have someone else travel with you for free on weekday evenings after 8pm and all weekend. That's on top of it being less than half the price in the 
first place. That's a bit of an idea, isn't it? Yes, yes. What about going running 24-7 as well? I mean, the, the, no one has ever suggested the Tube in London should run throughout the, the night. I think there was a discussion on Londonist about this, and it's, it's put down to the fact that the unions won't wear it. I, I imagine they've also got to maintain the, the track, so it may be more difficult here, but why is it that, that, that they can run 24 hours a day in, in New York and not here? That would make a, bit, a big difference. I've heard that there's a fundamental difference between the Paris system and ours, which is that they've got dual tracks, so if they want to maintain a bit of track, they can just send the train around the other one, so they can keep going 24 right. hours if they, if they choose to. Right. I, re- I suppose there is uh, one knock-on effect of, of extending... Um, extending tube services to 24-7, which is that rather than everyone on a Friday and Saturday night going home at 12.30 to catch the last tube, you have drunk people on the streets until 4 or 5 in the morning, which um, which maybe is a good thing for businesses, but not such a good thing for the police of London. That's true. The black cab services... Oh, the black cab service, when did that become... The black, black cab drivers are not going to approve of uh, 24-hour tube service. No, no. The, 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 the late-night buses do a very good job. and they, That seems to work, out, work, work quite, quite well, but there's no reason why they shouldn't stay uh, an extra hour or so just uh, because quite often you're just out a bit late and you the tube set is closed down jonathan rothwell here again in the comments section it's also interesting to note that child fares in other cities except for paris and newcastle tend to be higher this would indicate that on our system those paying the full adult fare subsidize those with discounted travel children students and passengers on freedom passes yeah that's the current as i have to admit it here the owner a proud owner of a Freedom Pass. It's an amazing perk, even though I almost don't use it a lot of the time. And uh, it, it doesn't make sense really at a time when there's a, uh, a great shortage of money that uh, the people who can afford it get the free pass for like, to go anywhere. Though it's fantastically convenient uh, at a time when poor people are really under under strain. I'm sure they could work out some way. I and mean, if we they charged me fifty pounds a year or a hundred pounds a year, I'd be buying it anyway. Uh, so I think there, there is some scope for progress there. And that's one of the reasons why premium fares are higher, higher because they're subsidising um, the Freedom Card, and a lot of people get a huge satisfaction out of that. I completely agree. That is one of my biggest bugbears, that the Freedom Pass is not means-tested, because, you know, you have some of the richest people over 60 in the country still being granted free travel, and frankly, if you know, if you're worth... 300 million, which obviously some of the people living in London are who are over 60, frankly, you, you don't need to save £2.50 when you're going from, you know, Kensington to Oxford Circus. Well, they probably don't travel by tube, they've got to share with <laughs> That's true as well. That's true as well. Um, but coming back to our child fares being cheaper, um, just, just looking at the research here, London's, London's child fare for a single is 70p, Tokyo 95. I mean, I mean, it's roughly the same, Berlin's significantly more expensive. Um, but I, I, I'm fully in favour of that. I think that's a wonderful initiative. I mean, um, one of London's joys is we have such a rich cultural scene and, and we have so many free museums and, and the joys of, you know, being having your eyes open to the Science Museum as a kid is just fantastic. If one parent can take two, three, four children for a cheap rate, you know, what a brilliant way to encourage yeah. them to get out and visit London and, and be exposed to all that education that's on offer. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. The free is like giving out blood free, having free museums is sort of a defining thing about about England and, and London. And it's also, it doesn't stop other uh, uh, galleries springing up, like for instance the the Royal Academy, that is uh, completely unsubsidised. They charge for everything and a huge success. They've got a hundred, nearly 100,000 people paying 90 or more pounds a year 
to go there. So these different models exist. While being able, you know, that you think that you wouldn't you wouldn't set up a new gallery where you, have to, you charge when everything else is free, but it doesn't matter because people have such a, an appetite for art in this country and in London particularly. I mean, the number of art galleries in London. There's that map. Have you seen it with uh, the art galleries south of the river? It's just amazing. There are there are just galleries everywhere. There, there are actually more art galleries in London than in Paris, and I think the wonderful thing, uh, you know, that has been planned very carefully in London and worked very effectively is that the big free offerings in art and culture have actually attracted much you know they've attracted the right artistic communities and therefore like you say lots of smaller galleries have sprung up as a result so the Tate Modern is the most visited um, art gallery in the entire world um, but it, that's not to not that's not to the exclusion of any smaller galleries obviously what it's meant is it's put London on the map as a real mm. cultural hub and therefore lots of smaller galleries and kind of you know, lots of other scenes have set up around that. You've set up an art gallery, haven't you, Victor? <laughs> that, yes, that was in the virtual world Second Life, and it was, uh, it was fantastic fun. It was when Second Life was uh, on a high a few years ago, and I found that uh, even though you were not a natural artist, you can go into Second Life, and once you learn a few tricks, you can uh, either import paintings from outside or do, your, do them yourself. And as we went on, I mean, the last thing I did in Second Life <laughs> was the, the Last Supper, uh, only it was done with with the, the, the apostles were women. So there were thirteen women. Each uh, needed a separate avatar. We had a picture of the actual uh, uh, Last Supper behind on a wall, and we uh, had uh, thirteen avatars, each needing a, a computer, one computer per avatar for people around the world. They all gathered together, dr- dressed up, and we then took a photograph of the Last Supper. I mean, that sort of thing you can do in in Second Life. We did lots of things like that, and it was great. It was great. I was very interested to see Shakespeare's Blackfriars Theatre is under threat in Second Life. Yes, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, this is an American girl, uh, woman in Second Life. Everybody uh, has a younger avatar because they, you know, and it's understood. You don't know if you're talking to someone, you don't know what their gender is, what how old they are. You've got to figure it out for yourself. And the person who ran Second Life, uh, the the Globe, and it put out, was putting on um, Twelfth Night and other shows with actors from around the world acting these avatars. Uh, I was in absolute awe of her. That she, she knew all of this, and she had a, an avatar that was about like eighty four, and I and just added to it. It turned out she was twenty something, and she just felt that she didn't, wouldn't have any credibility in Second Life if she didn't put the uh, uh, an older age, uh, age um, image to herself and she did, did this uh, in Second Life and various other things it was wonderfully innovative but Second Life raised, raised the fees but doubled them or trebled them because you're on an, you're an educational one instead of what they should have been doing is pushing it as a, a thing look this is what happens in Second Life they just drove her out and I thought that was just uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I've been withdrawing from Second Life because they just don't seem to sort of encourage the creative community in the way they do because they charge enough each month anyway but it's a wonderful thing and that, that was land costs, wasn't it, that went up her, uh, her plot that she was using or her area. They, they That's so-called tier costs. And they, the educational uh, tiers were on a cheaper rate and then they withdrew them and, and upped them they just, and they just couldn't um, afford to do it. What about how, how does that compare with uh, real life, first life, in terms of uh, London and, and, and property costs and commercial property and all that sort of stuff? How, how is that looking at the moment? Um, well, in certain areas, it, it's getting very steep. So uh, the commercial rent rights were actually broken quite recently on Bond Street. Um, Salvatore Ferragamo actually has just taken a um, a retail unit on Bond Street for a thousand pounds a square foot. That's a waste paper basket. Thousand pounds for your waste paper basket. 
Absolutely astonishing. Um, and Mayfair actually is, is undergoing a huge resurgence at the moment. So there's lots of luxury brands. For, I mean, obviously, there's always been luxury brands in Mayfair. But there's new streets within Mayfair that are suddenly springing up. So Mount Street is the, is the hotly tipped one um, where lots of luxury brands are newly flocking to. And it's just pushing up, pushing up the rents. Um, of course, you know, that's great for the landowners. Um, it, it's... It's great in some respects because it attracts lots of luxury tourists. So Mm -hmm. London has seen a a huge influx of um, very, very wealthy Chinese tourists coming to London because the Chinese have generally have quite an obsession with British brands and British luxury brands. So you see all these Chinese tourists coming to London, um, buying lots of London and British brands. Great for the business economy, but of course what it means is all the rents are being pushed up and they're they're squeezing out the businesses that have been Mm. traditionally there. And the people obviously that live in these areas um, are finding that they no longer have a convenience store to go to. Which which ties in, I, I think, with the um, issues around particularly Westminster Council t- tied in with housing benefit and people no longer being able to afford the properties they've been living in being pushed out of uh, that particular area into other council jurisdictions, uh, which then, of course, have to take the influx of primary school children or uh, additional people on the uh, medical registers and, and so forth. Of course, I mean... I think this is a real shame because one of the things that I've always loved about London and really respected about the way that, that the city has been planned is that you have you know a £3 million mansion right next to a council estate. I think that's one of the things that really keeps London a very diverse community. There's no ghettoising. You know, originally it was really planned to make sure that there's always that diversity of kind of socio-economic groups living, living alongside each other. Of course, now, now that people are being pushed further out, which always happens in London, you know, a new area becomes popular, it pushes out the people that have lived there for 20, 30 years. Um, but, it, but it seems that that trend is suddenly accelerating now and, and that the centre of London is going to become this very exclusive area where everything is phenomenally expensive. No one can afford to live there unless they're a multi-millionaire. Um, and, and that worries me slightly that, that you'll end up with this kind of ring of not com- you know not completely ghetto-wise, but m- more like Paris almost, where the centre is very exclusive, very expensive. And, and, you, and then you know the people who can't afford to live there are just left on the outskirts. And you haven't got what you had years ago the philanthropists many American coming in and building housing for the poor like the, the George Peabody and industrial dwellings and all these uh, they, they, those sort of people just don't seem to be around anymore I think they've got uh, Westminster Council in particular has got to tread this a bit carefully when they talk about it's a privilege to live in Westminster not a right you know, there was, a few years ago, they were accused, um, with some justification, of, uh, of pushing pe- poor people out of the centre of Westminster in order to increase the, vo- the votes. Now, that's not a nice thing. They should tread very carefully about doing this. It's a, as you, London thrives by its diversity, as you, you've mentioned, and I think they, they, they should be much more aware of that. I live in Westminster, and they're a very efficient council. I have to give them that. They're very efficient. But um, some of the, 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 the sort of political moves they're making, I think, are a little worrying. And also, the, um, the, you know, as a kind of follow-on point in this kind of ongoing clean-up of Westminster Council, pushing out the peace camp from Parliament Square, which, again, I, I absolutely love the peace camp. I thought it was one of the things that made London great, is that we're so democratic that we allow this to happen right next to our Houses of Parliament. Well, no, hold, hold on. Um, this is very interesting. You are the last... <laughs> the last but Sophie Hobson, editor of... <laughs> LondonLovesBusiness.com, and this this was uh, characterised as being a business and uh, capitalism versus everybody else sort of uh, protest, wasn't it? Well, let's let's hold on a minute because um, 
let's not confuse capitalism with greed. You know, capitalism means that the state doesn't run everything. It means that people have the right to start their own business and make their own money and work for themselves. I wholeheartedly believe that that's a healthy thing. If you want to start a business, you should be able to. It gives people independence. It gives them a sense of ownership, a sense of self-respect. It makes us a more diverse community. Let's not confuse that with the very prolific greed culture that obviously we do see in certain industries um, where people are aggressively going after profit, 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 to, to the exclusion of more more moral aims in business. There's a lot of businesses doing a lot of good out there. And let's not forget that three quarters of Londoners are employed by the private sector. You know, people work for businesses and, and frankly, if they're interested in business and they like business, that's great. That makes us a healthier economy. Um, and alongside, I, I don't think that businesses ever should ever go up, you know, be positioned as being anti anti-peace, anti-protesting. you know, anti -protesting. Frankly, we live in a democratic society. Business is what makes that function well. It's what allows us to have a well-functioning economy. And frankly, democracy should always, always, always be alongside that. Yes, I kind of got a mixed views about this because I, I think that uh, it was great having the, the right to protest in front of Parliament is, is really good and may even help tourism. I don't know because people come along. But then how, where does it stop? If you, if you allow one person, you've got to allow lots more and you could end up with the whole of... Of, uh, of that um, Parliament Square, which literally isn't used for anything else these days, it's just cut off from the from by the traffic. So I, I'm, I'm sort of in two minds. I think it's great to have it, the, the right to protest, and maybe they should make it more formalised and have be, uh, slots for people to protest. But uh, there is a worry if you allow one group of people, then you could have lots and lots more. But it's um, you, the right. The, one of the defining things about Britain is the, the right to protest, and with Speaker's Corner not quite what it was, we <laughs> then mm. it's good to have it. Uh, protests popping up elsewhere. We should differentiate, of course, between the, the protest opposite uh, the Houses of Parliament and the, the protest outside St Paul's. <laughs> what are your thoughts there? On Occupy London. Um, again, I thought it, it was quite a vibrant scene. Um, my political views about it aren't... I have to admit, I, have, I haven't really cemented my views on it because um, although I really like the fact that they wanted to come together and challenge the way that, you know, particularly... Um, systems like investment banking are done because frankly you know there are some pretty dodgy things going on there I like the fact that they were you know try, trying to trying to become more engaged with business and try to trying to understand the way it was done and, and maybe improve the way that business is done should they you know do they have a right to occupy part of London and literally just sit on the pavement you know, not anymore that's a bit more complex not anymore. No, they've, uh, no. their, appeal, no, anymore, their appeal has been turned down. Um, you met, oh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You, you mentioned uh, dodgy practice within the investment banking thing. What's, what sort of thing are you thinking of there? Well, I'm about to write a whole feature on it, so I won't give everything can away. You, can you give us a taster, a teaser? <laughs> well, I mean, it's down to regulation, essentially. Um, there are, I mean, the, the way that a lot of investment banks geared are, are towards maximising profit, um, and there's various things that are fully legal in which you can forward book your profits. So, so for example, you say, I'm going to do this set of trades or I'm going to do this deal. Um, before you've made any money out of those, you can essentially say that you've made the profit and it gets included on your profit for that year. Um, it's, called, it's called advanced booking. Um, and it is completely standard practice among financial accounting but I think that's one of the things that you know has tripped up a few financial institutions before because obviously if you don't make that profit, you've you've been slightly deceptive sounds outrageous from a lady point of view <laughs> I mean I think Occupy London has had a, a terrific effect on on the, the country's consciousness 
even though they haven't got a very coherent sort of plan of their own. But I agree with what you've been saying. The, and I, when I go take out a mortgage in, at um, Nationwide in Victoria Street or, 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 or wherever, um, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking I'll take my mortgage out with this company. Then I find out they've onsorted somebody else who's added some derivatives and everything else, and it goes round twice around the world without even asking me. me you know, what's the point of having different uh, mortgage companies when this, this sort of thing is happening? I think the, 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 the financial services industry, which is, is very important for Britain, for London, for employment, has just got to clean itself up. Look, today, yesterday, Lloyds Bank, over three billion provision for losses against mis-selling insurance policies. That's terrible for a, a, ba- a bank. I've always been in Lloyds Bank, but I just don't take them or any other banks uh, seriously when they when they do this sort of thing. And, they, and they've and yet obviously for London is the financial centre of the world pretty well, and uh, we've got to somehow preserve that while getting rid of uh, all these um, awful practices. I think one of the great things that Occupy London has achieved, and um, you know as absolutely catastrophic as our recent economic um, turmoil has been and, and don't get me wrong it has been absolutely catastrophic for this country and, and for many parts of the world the, the, the very faint silver lining is that I think people are now more interested in learning about the way business is done and the way that the financial system works than ever before um, the one slight flip side to that which is also part of Occupy London is that there's just been this general sentiment of capitalism is bad, and I yeah. think pe- I think people I think I think there's a very um, popular sentiment that capitalism is bad, banks are bad, and I think that's very dangerous because a lot of people you know feel very angry and yet they don't take the time to properly understand the issues. You know, we absolutely need banks in this country. You need them to keep your money safe, and and maybe you might not agree with the, some of the practices, but you have to understand the good they do and thoroughly examine the practices as well before you can start. You know, posturing those kinds of argument. Um, so, so the one thing that I would hope that would come out of all of this is that the people take take the time to learn a bit more about all the issues, how the financial system works, because, like you say, it's, it's an incredibly important industry to our country. Um, it accounts for eleven percent of our economy, our gross domestic product. The state's very dependent on it. You know, if, if we if we didn't have all these profits coming out of the financial services sector and the tax revenue from them, frankly, we'd have a lot less schools, we'd have a lot less hospitals, we'd have a lot less, you know, healthcare provisions and, and social services. And, and again, that's a very difficult line for the government to tread. One of the um, interesting things, going off a slight tangent, is that we're in, with the internet revolution, practically every industry has been disintermediated. The middlemen have been shut out, you know, eBay, Amazon, all this, but not in the biggest... Um, uh, one of all, banking, where you just take somebody else's money and you're the middle person, make money and lend it out. And that hasn't happened, and it's been a real puzzle to me as to why it hasn't. You get interesting experiments, like a London-based one, which I, I can lend to you, and it's, I'm a member of it, and it's really interesting, but it's on a very small scale. Uh, and hasn't got a government guarantee, but it's quite successful. But there hasn't been any big new uh, intermediary to, to, to challenge the banks. And uh, given the, 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 what the banks have been up to, uh, it's really surprising. That. And the, uh, the organisation you mentioned there, what do they do? How does it work? Zopa. It's, uh, I um, uh, lend, say, £1,000, and it's parceled up into £50 units and, and lent out. And I can see who I'm lending to. They may have pseudonyms. You can see who you're lending to. And there's no uh, per- person in the middle. Zopa takes a, a small fee. But otherwise, uh, for instance, at the moment, their interest rate is 7%. 
You can't get seven percent on, on your cu- current account or uh, on above a current account. It's going to be like one point something percent. If I lend money to Zopa now, I'm getting seven percent, and the people borrowing are therefore paying something like eight percent, because there's a percentage in between or less than that that, the, that Zopa takes, uh, and they, they they vet their borrowers very carefully. That's how they manage to survive like this, and um, it's um, been very successful, but only on a pretty small scale. And I suppose we, we're really waiting to see if it gets through this ne- this current recession, then it will have. Uh, Proved itself, but it is a very interesting experiment. There are not many of them around. It, it, sorry, I just wanted to go. It, it does feel like sort of grassroots collectivism is is one of the ways to deal with this sense of disenfranchisement that people seem to be expressing through things like Occupy. Well, I think Zopa is a fantastic example of a, of a way that um, lending is being slightly disrupted. We're also seeing in London um, the adoption of something called tra- crowdfunding, which is where you essentially upload your business idea to a website. Um, and then other people view your idea and think, God, I really like that idea. I'll, you know, I'll lend you ten pounds, a hundred pounds, a thousand pounds. So this is organisations like Ideas Tap and things like that. And um, and Crowdcube, Kickstarter as well for music. Um, really fantastic new models that that. I think, again, it's just this general trend of people becoming slightly more interested in business and, and a slightly new way of doing things. And I don't think that it's going to be an overnight success and that you know next month suddenly all the banks will be defunct. But I think um, there's lots of innovation happening in London and, and there are these new ideas springing up, which, which may be the way things look in the future. Yeah. I'm reading a book at the moment called No Straight Lines, which is just on this, no longer will the future be like the past and straight lines. All these interesting things are happening underneath and companies, big companies are going to have to um, adapt to them. And there are fantastic number of examples of what you mentioned uh, and who knows whether they're going to take off in a big way or not I think they probably they quite likely will because the the, the, the general people's appetite for this sort of thing is really is really good because the the, the big companies have been uh, increasingly seen as sort of vague distant and not really concerned with the consumer in the way they ought to and the internet provides an, uh, you know fantastic uh, scope for that because it's been a long time uh, when you think the internet's been here for the, the web has been here about 15 years but uh, buyers haven't got together in a way that they could for instance take an example f- uh, Facebook now fantastically successful uh, but they can do virtually what they want but if all the, the consumers of, of Facebook were in, uh, organised in order to say haha hang on you can't do that <laughs> uh, you can't take our privacy like that and remember all your assets are our photographs and our texts, you've got no assets. You're getting these billions all out. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but I can see it happening in, in, in years to come as the, as, as the intricacies of the web are understood. We could talk, actually, since we're on the subject of business, appropriately enough, about some businesses that you became aware of as a result of Blackfriars Station, Victor. Well, I just um, brought out this uh, app for the iPhone um, called Gems of London, and it consists of a anything from nice hidden cafes with art galleries to buildings that are no longer there. And when um, Blackfriars uh, Station was reopened for the, for the main line, not for the underground, uh, I went down there and I just looked down the stairs on Bankside and there in front of me just some anonymous buildings. And I know from maps and my research that just there, 50 yards on the left, was the Swan Theatre. It was the biggest theatre in Shakespeare's time in London. It, it could hold 3,000 people, more than any West End theatre today, and though London only had a population of 200,000. 
and it's just buried. It's not there anymore, and there's no plaque or anything to show that it is there. It was on a, an area called Paris Garden. I think they should call the station Paris Garden. It's lovely. It was 100 acres, which go back to, to hundreds and hundreds of years, and the, the, the manor house was turned into a brothel by a, a lady from Holland, known as the Holland's Liga, and it had a drawbridge, and so it was a notorious brothel in its own right, and when they say, the apprentice boys were rioting, as they did, they could pull up the drawbridge and get on with their, their stuff. And that and that's just in front of you. And then just slightly to the right as you go down, down there was the Albion Works, which was London's kind of answer to the Industrial Revolution from the north. It had a, set up a 24-hour uh, mill, which put lots of mills out of business. It wasn't very popular. And it belched forth smoke uh, all day and night. And it's now thought that this was the inspiration for William Blake's um, dark satanic mills, not the north of England, as I thought, uh, because Blake lived most of his time in Lambeth, and wrote a lot about Lambeth, and he, this was the dark satanic mill for him, so that, that became part of the hymn Jerusalem. And um, I'm told that even to this day there's still a, a little bit of greenery uh, by marks where the, the Albion Works was, and it's owned by the City of London, because the City of London built Blackfriars Bridge, and they also own the bit of land to the south. That was told me by, a, by London. I got that from Londonist. That bit. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you what do you make of the new black? We, it's, it's very exciting. It's just been opened. It's uh, a station for for those not familiar with it. It's a station uh, which crosses the river. It's on it's on a bridge. What, what do you think of what you see there? Well, I have only glided through it twice so far but I have to say it it, it looks lovely. Um, nice and clean, nice and airy. Um, I haven't been out and had a walk around so that's about the most i can say but the design looks looks very slick yes quite a, a clever design with, with solar panels that I, I believe are supposed to be providing at least some of the power for the station uh, in the in the coming months yeah i've walked down, down it and often i think it's very impressive but i'm puzzled i mean genuinely puzzled at the missed opportunity because it's only for travelers people who've got train tickets now if you're building a new bridge right across london surely you could have designed it so that it could take take uh, members of the public as well. Now, we know we've got other wonderful bridges, but every time you build a new bridge across London, it gets filled immediately. And I think that's a, a genuinely missed opportunity, and I don't know, know why they've done that. Um, and it also reminds me that just next door to Blackfriars Bridge is that, that old bridge, which is the Staunchons are still there, right across the river. They use that to build Blackfriars Bridge. Now, why isn't somebody doing something with that? It should be a Londonist campaign, but you've got the Staunchons in the river... Uh, I think there was a plan years ago for the Institute of Contemporary Art to move there, but it's just like the, the biggest bit of prime estate right in the middle of London, and no one's doing anything about it. You, I hope we should explain a little bit about it because you're an app maker. Right. Um, what, what, what are your apps all about? Um, well, I this started off when I, I, I used to write um, in my latter years on the garden. I used to write a weekly column on technology, internet, mobile phones, virtual world, anything I wanted to really, and I was used to test things out before I did them. My last app. My last column, I thought, what should I do? Let's see if it's possible to build an app at an affordable price. So it's kind of a template for kids. Because kids should be, at after school uh, uh, hours, they should be in clubs and that, that building their own apps because they can now do it. It's, 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 it's quite relatively easy to do. And so I, I um, just did my own app and I thought, what can I do? How can I get it cheap, do it cheaply? Well, poems are out of copyright. I can use those. So I decided to do one... Where, where it's all classic poems, and it tells you, for instance, how many yards you are away from that statue in Trafalgar Square, which has a very interesting uh, history. Uh, in one case, the, one of those guy, guys used to send back his dispatches from India in the form of poems, and that the other one was bigger than David Beckham. Crowds used to 
pour out into the streets uh, in order to, to, to hear news of him, of what he was up to. And he's got um, towns named after him in New Zealand, but here he's kind of completely forgotten. So this sort of thing, it, it, it unearthed for me uh, the history of London through poems, because there were no newspapers and all that in those days. And having done that, and, uh, and done it pretty cheaply, I think it cost me £300, then... We did the second one, Shakespeare's London, all these buried memories of London, like the, like the, um, the Swan Theatre. Because a strange thing, that if you go to Stratford, uh, Shakespeare's everywhere. You come to London, and where he spent most of his working life, and apart from the, the globe built by an, an American, there's hardly anything there. I, I, think it's actually, I don't think there's actually a, a single plaque devoted to Shakespeare as a writer. There is one as an actor and one or two other things. Uh, and yet all around, there, there, there's a, like the Blackfriars Theatre. His indoor theatre was just right by, Black, by Blackfriars Station. That was a huge thing. I walked up Blackfriars Road, uh, Farringdon Road, for decades without realising that, that Shakespeare's indoor theatre was there. So it goes on. There are lots all around. Then finally I did this. I thought, having done these slightly specialised ones, I'd do one of just of general gems of London because I picked up quite a lot of stuff and... And, and that's been fascinating, just going around and finding out um, what, what's uh, little buried aspects. This Roman Roman wall here, this uh, cafe there, where it's like a speakeasy. You have to press the button to get in, and there's an art gallery at the back, and all this sort of thing. I found it quite fascinating. Actually, reminds me a lot of a story I spotted earlier this week on The Londonist about um, the London Eye installing tablets in all its pods. So essentially now you'll be able to kind of lift up, but I'm not sure if it's an iPad or an iPad... I think it's I think it's actually a Samsung tablet, um, and you and you lift up the tablet as you're in the London Eye, and um, you get a kind of augmented reality overlay of everything you're looking at. Which means, um, for those who haven't used augmented reality before, you you kind of hold up the, uh, the the camera phone or the tablet phone, you you get a kind of photographic or video image. Uh, you basically look through the lens, and you'll have a little pop up saying, "Oh, that little site over there," and with an arrow saying, "This is the history of that. This is the history of that." What a fantastic way to really bring bring the scenery of London to life. You know, I think the London Eye is quite brilliant, but it, you know, it's been around a few years now. They did need to give it a bit of a facelift, um, and. I think, I think it also ties in really nicely with the fact that the government is trying really hard to reposition London as a tech capital and what better way to you know, show that actually we are quite in, in, inventive and we're creative and we're innovative and, and actually let's get people really interacting with the history of London through a really modern technology. I, I, like, that. I like that kind of marrying history with, with really modern technology. I think it's clever. Well, I think that's come about a bit as... It, it, out of competition with the Shard, because the Shard is now opening up its viewing platform, which would be much higher than the than the wheel. So the wheel, very, to its absolute credit, is, is, is seeing how we can we redo this, as you were say, saying, and it's got this augmented re- reality, which will really give an, an extra thing for it. For the, um, cause the, the Shard, I'm, I'm in two minds about whether I dare go up on the Shard. It's so kind of, I get slight vertigo on there. But anyway, it's <laughs> terrific that's, that, that's, that's happening. And, uh, and all credit to the, the eye for, for, for coming back and saying we're still here and you can get this added value by coming to us. I was in a helicopter. Very exciting. I was, in, I was in a helicopter and it was flying at a thousand feet. And the only other thing that you're conscious of being in the air is the top of the shard. Mm-hmm. It's a very, a very strange um, experience. I really want to ask you, Victor, you, there's a claim that you have managed to walk from Trafalgar Square. You've managed to walk how far without crossing the road? <laughs> this is quite funny because I, I said I, I'd walked from... Trafalgar Square to, um, without crossing a road or going over the same place twice and I got 17 miles way up the, the Lee Valley if you go from Trafalgar Square either the middle of Trafalgar Square if the underpass is open or just the north of 
Northumberland Avenue, walk up the Strand and then turn right into Charing Cross Station. That's the key. You can then go through the station over the embankment road and the river on the bridge, so you're not touching a, a road. And then I turn right first in, in order to go that way down to get a, add, a, add a bit of mileage and down, only down to Lambeth Bridge and came back down, uh, under Westminster Bridge to, to Blackfriars, over Blackfriars Bridge to Tower Bridge. And when you get to Tower Bridge, you can either go straight on and you end up at Deptford walking around in a circle. You can't get to Greenwich, so that was 12 miles. So the, the next time I went over Tower Bridge and started going on the north of the river, and there I can get to, to, um, to Greenwich and then on and on and down to the Lee Valley, which I'd never been to before. And I just kept, you know, if there's a crescent, I'd go around the crescent, come back out, make sure I wasn't, uh, I, I was going around it. And I eventually ended up right going in a circle, whether it was because I was just dazed or because it was, a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And I just then just called it a halt and looked for the nearest bus wherever it was going and just got on it. <laughs> it's a good job he's a good guy, isn't it? He'd be a fantastic evil genius, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, did you discover lots of interesting new cafes for all these new new streets of London? Mm. You were oh well, my, my the app for Jim's London—they're just the very central bit of London. As you start going out in one direction, the the, the area you've got to cover goes on and on. But there are, there were lots of interesting things on the on the on the way, and, and pubs and all that that I hadn't that I hadn't uh, realised. And I'll, I'll I'll come back to because it, it, it's possible to go much further. Which I shouldn't. But if you go down on the north side of the river to Greenwich, you can then go under the tunnel into Greenwich proper, and then God knows how long you can, if you start walking down the, the beyond the, the the Millennium Dome and all that, I mean, you can go for miles and miles. You, can, you probably, probably anyone could break my record without any trouble. The gauntlet is down. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie. Every week sees a new plan for Battersea Power Station. What, what are you making of the, the latest proposal? I, like most Londoners, I, I love Battersea Power Station. I mean, I'm, I'm yet to find a person who doesn't feel some kind of bond with it. It's just such a London icon. Um, the trouble is, to, to maintain it at the moment, I think it's costing something astronomical. Um, I think it's about 200 million a year. Or to maintain it? Gosh. Maybe twenty million. I might be missing a zero. I should probably. I should probably have checked that fact. <laughs> you, you don't come from banking, by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> I should maybe check that fact before I before I go uh, getting it recorded. Me saying it. But is what, it, what we could do is we could record a whole series of reactions to two million. You say <laughs> twenty five <Two> million. <laughs> <A> trillion. <laughs> Um, there's, there's been these ongoing projects to try and make something of it. You know, obviously it's used for um, big conferences and business awards and business events and um, and hotel redevelopments and flats. Um, I personally would love to see it renovated because I think I think there's huge potential in the area and, and a lot of money is suddenly coming into Battersea. Um, so there's been a lot of talks about Bat- uh, the Northern Line being extended to Battersea, which obviously will really open the area up. The American Embassy is about to open mm. up, uh, well, it's about to move its embassy to Battersea, which again, you know, that's going to be a pretty sizable embassy. And that will then mean that there's a whole new, you know, sprinkling of shops all around to support them and housing around there. Is that because they're feeling guilty about the congestion charge thing? <laughs> what the Americans? <laughs> well, the, the, you don't have to pay. I hadn't thought of that. That's the re- main reason for moving to. There, were, there was. They, they worked out how much the American embassy owed in terms of conge- unpaid congestion charge, and there was a big furore over whether it was classified as a tax or as a charge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it got paid in the end, I'm not entirely sure. But I wonder, I wonder if they're skulking off. 
<laughs> they might be. They might just be. Um, so, so the the new the new plans for Battersea Power Station, the latest plans. Um, again, another story for a great story from the Londoners earlier this week are proposals by a guy called Terry Farrell, um, and his plan is to demolish the side walls and then replace them with a colonnade. Um, so, so there'll be a kind of park in the middle of the four turrets. Um, I, I can't I can't quite describe it visually <laughs> um which is probably why i'm a journalist not an architect <laughs> um but i think i think it's quite exciting um and apparently 500 million could be shaved off a development project if if the chimneys which are which are you know in a really critical state they're one of the most expensive things to maintain were demolished but then of course for me personally the chimneys are what make it so beautiful and such an incredible mm. structure and mrs thatcher was prime minister that they that they sealed the deal that was going to do it. And, and since then, there are all these other ones coming up. And in the end, I suppose, I just hope that, like the Millennium Dome, it has a happy ending and that they, they will let to do it. Because it is, the, the, it is the, bigger, the last big bit of space in central London. Uh, and the, on the experience so far, that whatever we do, it seems they seem to work. Any artistic projects, they seem to bring in extra people and you can com- combine it with commercial uh, development and housing. Um, it, I'd love to see the, 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 the chimneys retained. I mean, if you didn't, don't retain the chimneys, that's the iconic Sorry. status of it. It's gone. It's time for a roundup of things to see and do on the cultural front in London in the week ahead. And this week, the listings are dedicated to listener Beth Nichols, who says, I'm so addicted to your podcast. Whenever I hear the end theme song, I get sad it's over. I listen in my car. And it's tricky to take note of all the interesting things I want to look up later. I'm listening from the US at the moment, Georgia. There's always something I want to do from the What's On segment. I look forward to being there permanently. Uh, We look forward to having you with us, Beth. This uh, selection is for you. This week sees a rare first performed by the Royal Opera. Dvorak's Rusalka is the tragic story of a water nymph who longs to walk on the ground like a human. Drawing on the richness of Czech mythology, Rusalka mixes the supernatural and the mortal in this story of a nymph, a prince, a princess, a water goblin and a witch. Think of a variation of the Little Mermaid with more singing. This production is a modern interpretation setting Rusalka in a seedy backstreet world. Rusalka is at the Royal Opera House from Monday the 27th of February. Tickets start at £8. Visit roh.org.uk to find out more. Our dance recommendation this week is again at the Royal Opera House, this time in the smaller, intimate Lindbury studio. Ballet Black is a troupe of eight dancers who highlight and celebrate the talents of black and Asian dancers from around the world. They're performing at the Lindbury studio from Wednesday the 29th of February through to the 6th of March. It's a new programme of innovative inspiration and international dance tickets. Cost between £8.50 and £20. Uh, Again, visit the Royal Opera House website to book tickets. Award-winning film and television actress Jolie Richardson makes a return to the London stage. This week she'll play the Lady from the Sea in Henrik Ibsen's elusive masterpiece at the Rose Theatre in Kingston. It's the story of a claustrophobic marriage with a surprisingly optimistic outcome compared to Ibsen's other work, A Doll's House. The play is directed by Stephen Unwin, who's widely acclaimed for earlier productions of Ibsen's plays. Tickets cost between £8 and £28.50. Visit rosetheatrekingston.org for more details.
There's a new show opening at the newly named Royal Museum's Greenwich on Thursday the 1st of March. Measuring the Universe marks the 2012 transit of Venus, the last one to happen for 105 years. Measuring the Universe from the transit of Venus to the edge of the cosmos looks at how in previous centuries astronomers used these rare transits to measure the distance to the Sun, giving us the first inkling of the enormity of the cosmos. Visit the website for the newly grouped Greenwich Museums at rmg.com co.uk to find out more. And finally, it's not often I'm able to alert you to a free music choice, but this week I have this for you, Voices Now at the Roundhouse. It's a day-long celebration of the UK's best choirs. Starting at 11am on Sunday the 4th of March, you can turn up at any time you want and see a range of talented vocal groups. World music performers, beatboxing choirs, classical choirs, and so on will perform throughout the day. Voices Now is part of Music Nation, which is a countdown event for the London 2012 Festival, the finale of the Cultural Olympics. Visit roundhouse.org.uk to find out more. And don't forget, you can find out more about all of these events and many more, plus all the stories we've been discussing today at londonist.com. Sophie Hobson and Victor Keegan, what's tickled your fancy from that selection? I think the voices now sounds absolutely fantastic. I think you know I love London for all the free things it does, and and and, and what really got me going was uh, beatbox choirs alongside the the more operatic and traditional um, variants of singing. So I think I'll definitely be heading down there and uh, dipping in and out. Yes, I've, I've got to uh, confess a personal interest as well. The choir with no name, a, a homeless choir that I'm uh, involved with, are going to be performing that day. Well worth a look. I've been hearing them practice in previous weeks. Well, that, that, that sets it for me as well. Rather than queue up at the Royal Opera House, it would be very nice at the end. But uh, take advantage of what's free in London. London is the great place for free things, and so you can drop into voices now. I think I might do that. Well, there's one thing I have to say. Um, I've, I've recently discovered that you can actually get to operas and ballets, um, which I'm, you know, I can't say I'm a, usually a great fan of, but I want to, you know, discover more about. And the Royal Opera House, if it does do tickets right at the back for kind of seven or ten pounds, which I think is incredibly reasonable. It's cheaper than a lot of cinemas. So if you do ever fancy widening your uh, your cultural eyes and you, and you haven't tried them before, I think it's well worth getting down that's there. A, that's a very good point. The National Theatre, they do. 10, I think it's 12 pound seats now and you get front, you get the front of the stalls which is where we'd like, we'd like to be anywhere and so I, most of the time I go to the National Theatre now I queue up in the morning, you take a book queue only for an hour, an hour and a half and you get a, a 12 pound ticket right in the front no matter what's playing and I've never yet not got one This is the upside of the economic uh, downtime isn't it really? <laughs> I've passed around People's Exhibit A, which is the picture of the new new statue on the fourth plinth, and it uh, depicts a golden boy on a golden rocking horse. What, what do you make of this? At first I thought, well, could you get this in Hamleys? It looks a bit like a, a, a rocking horse, but I, I, I love the, 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 the plinth and the way that it generates new ideas as part of the you know, public sculptures that are popping up all over London. And yet again, one of the great attractions of London. You get now, you know, Winston Churchill sitting on a seat, you can sit by him, John Betjeman at St Pancras Station, and the fourth prince, with the, which in, encourages uh, new kinds of, uh, of, of art. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. I think the fourth plinth initiative is, is really fantastic actually I love the fact that we keep rotating um, artists on there and really opening people's eyes up to, to new artists and, and quite well known artists within the industry but people that not necessarily the general public is aware of um, which actually um, leads quite nicely into the thing that I 
spotted as well the the big egg hunt uh which is which has just launched um it'll be running across london and the idea is it's a lot like the uh, big fiberglass elephants you saw um i can't remember if it was last year or the year before but they were dotted all around london um decorated by by tons of different people and obviously before that we had the cows as well so so you kind of suddenly you know walking through westminster and spot a spot a multicolored cow poking out from the from behind some statue um and don't, th- don't tell Sophie that there was no such initiative and that she was just on the uh, on the mushrooms or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were multicolored cows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the idea this time is um, there's going to be 200 giant Easter eggs uh, made of fiberglass hidden all around London, and the, and the idea is this time they're going to be slightly less visible. So you have to you have to hunt them out, and there'll be an app to help you, and, and you can kind of get involved on Facebook. Um, they're all decorated by different people, so. Uh, you have designers like Vivian Westwood and Sandra Rhodes alongside um, really fantastic British artists, um, the Chapman Brothers and Mark Quinn. Um, and again, I love this idea. And it's all raising money for charity, but it's really getting people excited about the you know different design and art and, and creative people in London that perhaps they didn't know about before. You know, maybe they'll look up the Chapman Brothers and end up you know finding out when they're next showing at White Cube and get down there and go to that free gallery and discover a bit more about them. Um, we, it has to be said, uh, finally, that it wasn't just the idea, the concept of the eggs themselves that attracted you to this article, was it? <laughs> I have an incredibly uh, soft spot for horrendous puns. <laughs> I'm slightly ashamed to say it as a journalist, but frankly, uh, frankly, I absolutely love them. So uh, uh, to, to cite the site, if you're the sort of person who gets annoyed by extremely weak egg-based puns, it might be expedient to leave town now. Scramble, if you will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where, where can we? I don't know if I've got the energy to go on after that. Um, where on earth could we possibly find out more about uh, LondonLovesBusiness.com? Well, the best website to go to would be LondonLovesBusiness.com. It's a digital newspaper for London's business community, but we have lots of lifestyle content on there as well. So, one of the things we have been talking about as well, of course, is the general public wanting to find out more about how businesses work, how banks work, and one of the th- things that we're, I'm really keen to get through on LondonLovesBusiness.com is actually to demystify some of those processes about how the financial system works um, and where that fine line lies between how businesses can support communities and really help the economy grow um, and where actually some business practices can become quite damaging and almost cannibalistic and and, and quite destructive. Um, So if you are interested in becoming slightly more informed about how business works and financial systems in various industries in London and really how the economy hangs together, please do um, log on to LondonLovesBusiness.com because we're always very keen to to help demystify those processes. Yeah, there's some some great features on there, and the, the feature you've got coming up, I think you mentioned it earlier. What's your what's your next big one? Well, today our lead story is um, eight reasons to fear Google, which um, is the slightly darker side to the internet, despite all the positive things we've been saying. Um, and, and some of the things we've mentioned today, we talked quite a bit about uh, innovation and tech in London, and and really we have quite a lot of um, coverage of London's tech scene on there and the creative industries. Victor Keegan, what's, uh, what have you got up your sleeve at the moment? Well, if you're looking for, for free things to do, unusual things to do anyway, there's this uh, iPhone app called uh, Gems of London, which uh, it's tied to satellite uh, satellites so it'll tell you where, where you are and you're so many yards from this cafe or from that pub, from, I don't know, Wilton's Music Hall. 
uh, Vauxhall Bridge, which has remains older than Stonehenge, but you can only see at low tide. All sorts of, of curious things like this. And uh, I, I myself, I made it myself. I actually use it as my default map now because I just want to pick out a map of London. I can just find out where I are because I, I tend to forget where the, some of these things are anyway because they're out, they're out of the out of the way. So that's one thing. And of course, you've got a, a, a blog, which uh, I know you, uh, articles appear on every now and again. Oh yes, I, my, I kind of now left the garden. I used to do business and uh, economics most of my life, but I'm now just exploring um, new, creative uses of new technology, and I try to blog about that the, uh, in this way. And I'm involved in various projects uh, like like that. I'm, there's a, um, a poetry competition for, for text message poetry about the Olympics, which I'm I'm judging. I'm writer in residence at Kingston University and. And uh, involved in yet another project in a virtual world to do a, a paradise garden, so it goes on. <laughs> but the, the, the key thing is our creative uses of this new amazing new technology that we have, uh, like painting on your phone, which is a sort of uh, a kind of game breaker that people can now. Um, not just David Hockney, but anyone can paint with their on their phones or on their iPads, and with any colours they like, and they can then frame them, do what they like with them. It's a whole new era, which is an exciting note too end on I think Sophie Hobson and Victor Keegan thank you very much thank you and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Sophie Hobson and Victor Keegan thanks too to Bernie Barkley and Zoe Craig theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson and I'm N. Quentin Wolfe 